from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony Perkins on this lovely Friday. And it is the uh, halfway point of the month of January. And I tell you what, folks, uh, so far, 2020 had nothing on 2021 so far. At this point in uh, 2020, we were bored, I think. Not so this year, as we look down the barrel of the inauguration next week of um, of. President-elect Joe Biden, who will be inaugurated. We've had quite a couple weeks leading up to that. And we are on today's program. We're going to look ahead a little bit in and anticipate what is going to happen in the Biden administration, both on some uh, life issues, also on some religious freedom issues. We're going to talk to Mary Zock, who's the director of the Center for Human Dignity here at FRC, as well as David Clausen who's the uh, center for the who's the director of the center for ethics and and biblical worldview at uh, at FRC as well. But before we get to that, we are going to talk very specifically about the inauguration and more specifically how the inauguration is kind of changing the landscape in the nation's capital uh, this week leading into next week because this is an unusual set of preparations that we are seeing in an unusual time and here to have that conversation with us is Jeff Mordock who is a a uh, Journalist for the Washington Times, he wrote a great article on this, and I think you're going to find this very interesting just to see how interesting these times are. Jeff, thank you for joining us on Washington Watch. Thank you. Thank you for having me on today. Appreciate it. Well, we are glad to have you because, you know, a lot of the a lot of the country, most of the country, thankfully, does not live in Washington, D.C. So there's a lot of people who don't have a, a, a personal appreciation. Uh, they, they lack context for what it is that's, having, that, that's happening here uh, this week. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what's going on and what you've observed? Well, what we've observed is uh, a tremendous amount of security protocols. I've covered multiple inaugurations. I've never seen security measures like this. Uh, Barack Obama's first inauguration in 2009, because of the historic nature of it, there were a lot of security measures in place. Uh, It was not like that for his second inauguration. It was not like that for the first Trump inauguration. This exceeds that, what we saw in 2009. And what is different? How does it – what exactly are the differences that you're noticing? Well, first of all, we have um, scores more of National Guard. We're expecting 20,000 National Guard troops in the city by Wednesday. I think right now we already have about 10,000 in the city. That number is only going to go up. We've never had a swarm of National Guard's uh, troops like this. To put that in perspective, for President Trump's inauguration in 2017, we had 5,000 National Guard troops. We have 13 metro stations are currently shut down in the city. For President Trump's inauguration in 2017, we had five metro stations shut down. We have restaurants being shut down. We have uh, street closures. They have already shut off a lot, shut down a lot of the parking garages in downtown D.C., and they have told you if you don't get your car by, I think it was 5 p.m. today, your car will be in there through Thursday of next week. So hopefully everybody who's listening in Washington got their car out of the parking garage by now. Um, They are encouraging people 
not to rent. Uh, the mayor's telling people in the hotels, don't you know, be careful who you're giving lodging to. They've been encouraging people in Airbnb not to book rentals, fearing that they might be uh, you know, far-right terrorists planning a plot. Um, I saw some airlines flying into D.C. this weekend have prohibited checking guns in bags, even if you have a legal permit to bring your gun aboard. It is incredible the amount of security that we're seeing here. Where is this coming from? Is this a, a, a the district authorities? Is this the capital authorities? Who is it that has decided this is the year that we need to ramp this up? It's a combination of district authorities, the mayor, and a combination of the federal agencies that run the city. As you know, D.C. is unique in that we're, it, we're basically controlled by the federal government. Um, so they have to make the decisions. Some decisions are left to the mayor. Uh, she has made some of these decisions, but it's a combination of her and, and federal agencies. There are some people in the FRC office who basically who have military experience and have basically described kind of what they're feeling on the ground in Washington, D.C. as like kind of a, a third world occupancy that they've been part of in past lives. There are people there are checkpoints on the streets in Washington, D.C., and there are people who are just employees trying to get to work who are being stopped by National Guardsmen asking them, what are you doing here? Uh, just as they're, you know doing the routine they've done every day, trying to get to work. So it really is correct. unusual we, times. That we, yeah, that's absolutely correct. We've had, um, there's an inauguration perimeter, and if you're in that perimeter, you may be stopped and asked questions about what you're doing. Uh, another thing, I mean, going through the list of stuff, there were so many stuff. I even forgot to mention we're closing down the National Mall, which is usually where people congregate to watch the inauguration on a big screen. That's been closed. The Washington Monument's been closed for over a week now. Uh, it's really st- – I mean, there's so many measures. I even – I forgot to list some of them. That That's how many there are. So is the is the mall and, – and for folks who don't know Washington, D.C., if you don't know what the mall is, you've seen the mall on every picture. It's the big grassy uh, – b- the big grass lawn that extends from the U.S. Capitol down to the Lincoln Memorial, and the Washington Memorial sits in the middle of it. You know what the mall is. It's not a shopping mall. It's a grassy mall. And it's typically where people gather during the inauguration to watch that. Is that still going to happen? The Park Service has not made – the official statement from the Park Service is they have not made a decision yet. But talking to city officials and people in law enforcement, they tell me it is going to happen, that the mall will be shuttered. Um, and it will probably start, I would guess, sometime Tuesday and run through Thursday. I would be shocked if they kept the mall open. Do you think that all of this is necessary? I think there's two things going on here. I, I, I think first is I think they're trying to send – I think they want to send a message. Uh, obviously what happened at the Capitol last week has scared people, and they want to send a message, a strong message. And we could argue whether or not it is overkill. It certainly is like living in a police state right now in this city. I don't know if some of these things that they're doing are necessary, uh, but I think they're trying to – the overkill is in place to send a message and to scare off potential bad actors. Mm-hmm. But it's hurting businesses, and that, that's the thing that, that we're not, that's not getting a lot of attention is the impact this is having on D.C. businesses. And, and they weren't thriving necessarily in the last year anyway, were they? 
No, that's exactly right. Because we've had such onerous coronavirus restrictions, most of these restaurants have been shut down. We're finally getting to the point where some of them have been able to open for outdoor dining only. They're starting to get more delivery business. They're starting to get more takeout business. And now they're being shut, shut down again. And uh, I had a business owner tell me that he typically, pre-pandemic, he was doing $2,000 in sales a night. He was now doing about $1,000 in sales since they've kind of reopened and are starting to work. He did $800 in sales Wednesday night because people don't want to come downtown because of the security measures for the inauguration. And honestly, as a, you know, as I think most of us kind of understand that if you if you're if you feel like you're in a police state if you're surrounded by armed guards it's not the same experience to just kind of stroll through town and grab a bite to eat and get some coffee and and just enjoy it's it's a very different atmosphere that 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 exists and I understand why it's discouraging people how do you, how are business owners in the district responding to this what's the what's their mood of like well it's just another thing we'll get through it is there is their pain tolerance already so high because of covid that they're just like whatever or are people becoming more frustrated i think it's what you said that i think the pain tolerance is so high with covid also they don't want to be seen as speaking out against the security measures, because if you speak out against them or point out how draconian they are, you know, people are going to start accusing you of, of, oh, don't you want to, you know, don't you want to terror attack? Are you trying to support the terror? Are you trying to do this? Uh, You'll get a lot of criticism. You know, I watch local news at night, and very rarely do you see, and people will hem and haul, but nobody ever comes out and directly criticizes how extensive these security protocols are. It's always, well, it's, it's an inconvenience, but safety matters. It's, it's stuff like that. Nobody seems like they want to come out and say it. Now, at the inauguration next week, uh, which is typically a, a festive event, I assume people are going to want to be part of this. Is this going to be a just totally where there's not going to be a public presence? What, what's it going to look like compared to what we see, what we've seen in past years? We tune in on our televisions. We see, you know, tens, hundreds of thousands of people on the mall watching this event. What's it going to look like next week? It is going to be a very sparse crowd. It's going to be a sparse crowd. You had the mayor of uh, D.C. actively encouraging people not to come into the city for this. You have the, the governor of Maryland, the governor of Virginia, one's a Republican, one's a Democrat, telling their citizens, don't go into D.C. that day. If you can stay home, please stay home. There's also no place to go. You, they've shut down so many metro stops. You can't take metro in the city and be anywhere close to where the inauguration is. They've shut down so many streets. You can't get close to the inauguration by navigating those streets. You can't. They, they've made, in addition to discouraging people, they've made it so incredibly inconvenient to come down. It, most people are going to say it's probably not worth the hassle. Is there any word from the Biden team how they feel about this? Is is this stealing some of their thunder? Are they disappointed that it's not the party that inaugurations typically are? What's their reaction to what's happening? They've been mum. They they have been mum. I know um, there was a briefing with um, Vice President Biden and his security team with uh, local with local and federal officials about security. They didn't say much about the briefing. They they've been relatively mum about this. Do you think any of it has to do with COVID, or is this strictly a reaction to what happened in the Capitol on the 6th? 
I believe it's strictly a reaction to what happened on the Capitol on the 6th. They were planning some virtual events because of COVID, and they were going to encourage people. And there certainly would have been measures, but we wouldn't have the measures we're seeing now. We would not have 13 metro stations shut down. We would not have 20,000 National Guard troops in our city uh, because of COVID. This is largely a reaction to what happened in the Capitol on uh, January 6th. Now, you mentioned that this is unusual compared to other inaugurations. Is there anything else, inauguration or otherwise, that you could compare this kind of security presence in the nation's capital to? I can't. As a matter of fact, I used to live in New York City. I lived in New York City on 9-11. And I remember the security protocols and security measures that happened in the city after 9-11. And it is nothing like this. It is It is way more extreme than what happened. You know, when you talk to security officials, they keep pointing to that FBI bulletin that protesters are planning attacks on, or planning, I'm sorry, protesters are planning demonstrations, um, events at the capitals in all 50 states. They're warning that they may become violent. But even here, it just seems like an extreme because it seems like 20,000 guards, a fraction of that can handle that threat. Final question for you. We are running out of time very quickly. How should we be feeling about this? The nation's capital you know, got all these soldiers in it. What, what's our reaction as, as the public? What should it be? Well, I think, the, I think we should be concerned. We should be wondering, is this what it's going to be like from here on out? Is this setting the stage for future, uh, for future liberties to be removed? Is this going to be what society is like from here on out? Is this a way to slowly erode our liberties? That's what people should be concerned about. And that is a great question. Jeff Mordock, Washington Times, thank you for joining us. We will be back with Mary Zuck after the break. Talk about life. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org Bible and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. In a recent poll, it was revealed that only 6% of Americans hold a biblical worldview. This research also indicated that Christianity's teachings on abortion, marriage, and homosexuality are not only misunderstood, but seen as dangerous and subversive. In response to this trend, Family Research Council has released a new set of resources in our Biblical Worldview series. In addition to our full publications, which cover the topics of Christian political engagement, abortion, religious liberty, and human sexuality, FRC now offers helpful summaries of each publication in this series, as well as accompanying prayer guides to help you and your family pray through these important issues. And finally, our popular biblical principles for political engagement is now available in Spanish. 
All these resources are free and available at frc.org slash worldview. Again, that's frc.org slash worldview. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph back home with you, sitting in for Tony Perkins today on this Friday afternoon, evening. And we are looking forward, looking ahead to the Biden administration today and some things to to uh, to understand, to think about how we how what are we expecting to happen in the next four years, assuming President Biden is president for four years and there's a. A lot of speculation that he might not do the whole four years, but we shall see. But one of the issues that we work on at Family Research Council is life. And one of the newest members of our team is Mary Zock, who's the director of the Center for Human Dignity. And she wrote an amazingly compelling, beautiful piece in Newsweek today about... Uh, a variety of things, including uh, her miscarriage that she recently experienced. And she talked openly and honestly about this. Mary, welcome to the program. Thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Joseph. Well, we are glad that you are here. Why did you choose to tell this story so publicly? I spent a lot of time in prayer thinking about... um, about the child that I miscarried and uh, about the difference that that child would make in this world um, and and chose to tell this story publicly in part because there are so many women out there who have also had miscarriages, who have, have experienced so many of the same challenges that I did um, and wanted those women to know that they're not alone and um, that miscarriage is an incredibly challenging time. Um, time of great sorrow and pain um, and that it's okay to feel those emotions because a child dies in a miscarriage an unborn child dies um, and that's something that we we should all mourn what is it about what you have learned what you've experienced that you hope to be able to communicate to other people through that I hope to communicate the humanity of the unborn child. You know, um, my miscarriage happened um, in the first trimester, which is when most miscarriages do occur. Um, and that, incidentally, is is also the time when, when the majority of abortions occur. Um, and I think that there's a great connection there in that as a society, 
that child doesn't appear to be a person yet. We we haven't accepted that that child is a person. Um, and uh, it's something that we need to bring a greater recognition to, that that, that unborn child from the moment of conception is a person. Um, and so I would like to convey to other people, you know, I I know that this child, you know, whose, whose picture I have um, was was a person um and and miscarried women everywhere know that the child that they miscarried was a person that's why it's such a such a challenging experience because a a person died you talked about a the conversation that you had with your doctor or maybe the, the the statement that he made when he when he broke this news to you uh tell us about what that was and why it impacted you yeah, so I um, was had had my ultrasound following my miscarriage, and the doctor walked in, and he very directly and without emotion said to me, um, "Your uterus is empty. You obviously aborted." And uh, it it hit me so hard. You know, the the medical term for a miscarriage is a spontaneous abortion, um, but the way that he said it was so devoid of any emotion. Um, it, it made me think a lot about women who do have abortions and the pain and suffering that they must go through silently because there's no space for them to grieve. Um, the the pro-abortion movement has become the movement of celebrate your abortion and shout your abortion from the rooftop. Uh, and And I know what the pain of losing an unborn child is like. That's not something you want to celebrate or shout from the rooftop. That's something that you want someone to give you a hug and tell you they'll listen to you and that they love you and that they're they're there for you. Mm-hmm. You know, t- to that point, I think a lot of us struggle with how to respond and how to deal with someone else's tragedy and someone else's grief. And and you, in your article, uh, you, you talked about just navigating some of that and how other people would try to be helpful and, and maybe wouldn't be helpful in their attempts. How would you recommend, based on what you've just been through, how should people uh, respond to somebody who have experienced a miscarriage? I, I think in a lot of ways it's, very similar to the ways that you respond to someone who has experienced any tragedy. You don't minimize it. You allow that person to talk and to share what they're going through if they want to. And if not, you just sit with them. Um, try think, Statements that show you're trying to make it better for them uh, often, for me, just made me feel like someone was minimizing uh, the, the pain and suffering that I was going through. And so I think really just sitting there and being a, a listener um, is very helpful. And a, as the book of James says, be quick to hear, slow to speak. And this is just yet another um, situation in which that ends up being uh, wisdom. Now, Mary, you are the director of of the Center for Human Dignity at FRC. You are uh, demonstrably and previously a pro-life person. So this did not make you pro-life, this experience. But how has it impacted your, your, the way you think about it or your commitment to the issue? Like you said, Joseph, I've been pro-life my entire life. You know, my, my family was uh, going to the March for Life when I was a little baby. Um, and so this experience did not make me pro-life. But 
it gave the unborn children that we're fighting for in the pro-life movement a face and, and a name. And um, the face is that of my unborn child, who I miscarried, because he was the same age as many of the unborn children who are killed through abortion. And, and, and why, why does that impact you? What's the significance of that? Like the fact that this is the same, the same people. It's, it's now, now fighting for life is about fighting for the little boys and girls, the, the little baby boys and girls who would have been friends with my son. Yeah. And um, it makes it more personal and, and really invigorates me. That's powerful. And, and Mary, we do thank you for the courage to share this story because we know that you're not alone in this. And, Mary, you're going to come back with us on the other side of the break. Stay with us because we're going to, we're going to talk practically about what's going to happen in the Biden administration and why Mary's work is so important and why you need to be involved as well. Stay with us. The history of religious persecution in China is extensive, and many are not aware of the current oppression of religious groups taking place there. China restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale. This religious persecution targets those of every faith. Christians, Muslims, Tibetan Buddhists, and Falun Gong practitioners are all victims of the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to suppress any set beliefs that might compete with the party's ideology. This campaign against religion has had and continues to have devastating consequences for those who simply wish to live according to their conscience. Family Research Council's recently updated publication addresses China's consistent abuses of human rights and explains why they cannot be treated like any other country. Learn more about this issue by visiting frc.org slash China. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, I definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? Welcome back to Washington Watch. This is Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony Perkins, and we are talking with Mary Zock, who is the director of the Center for Human Dignity at Family Research Council, and she just got done describing a great article that she wrote in Newsweek magazine that was published today. And if you want to find that, it's Mary Zock, S-Z-O-C-H. I got that right, Mary? Correct. Is that right? Okay, yeah. and so you do want to uh, go look that up on the uh, search engine of your choice that respects your privacy, but um, and read that article. And uh, if you've missed the last segment, but 
now, Mary, we're going to talk a little bit more about your job and the work that you do here at FRC and some actual recent developments with the March for Life, which is, you know, it's, we, we're, we're on a Friday in January, and typically we celebrate Fridays in January with the March for Life. This is going to be a sad year because as of today, the March for Life has gone virtual. Is this the first time that the March has not happened in person that you're aware of? That I'm aware of. This is the first time that it's not happened in person and in D.C. It's the longest ongoing uh, human rights march in the U.S. And so that is kind of a sad day. And, and I, I am, you know, in, in this season that we're in, and we talked earlier in this program about all the security measures around the inauguration, just some of that unrest, as well as the coronavirus concerns that continue to linger. Um, I'm sure that they uh, they struggled with this decision, but we understand. And how, how are we going to support and honor the march this year as opposed to past years? What, do you have any advice for us? I think making certain that you are marching for life in your own way wherever you are, whether that is gathering for um, prayer on the day of the march or um, – showing your support for the March for Life online or reaching out to a friend who you know does not share your pro-life views. Um, I think there are a number of ways that we can still stand for life. Um, and, and of course, doing that virtually by signing up for the virtual March for Life. And that's at marchforlife.org, I believe. Do I have that website right? I think I do. Marchforlife.org. Yes. And also, I, I, I would say that there are there are local manifestations of the March for Life, and your state capital or your city, um, your uh, in the uh, city hall, some places where people do this. Is, and this doesn't necessarily mean that everything is ca- canceled because some people are a long ways away and weren't accustomed to going to Washington, D.C. anyway. And if that's you, your local event may still be on. And we would encourage you to stand for life next Friday as well as every other day. And it is more important now, perhaps, I don't know if that's actually true, it is equally as important now because of what's going to happen next week with this inauguration. Uh, Mary, talk to us a little bit about what, how you're feeling, what you're expecting from a Biden administration on the life issues. Well, these last four years, we've had a lot of victories for the unborn. You know, we've partially defunded Planned Parenthood under Title 10, we've stopped taxpayer, taxpayer funding for abortion, appointed over 200 pro-life judges, including three pro-life Supreme Court justices, um, signed an executive order protecting infants born alive. And and sadly, I think under the Biden administration, we are going to see a lot of that under attack. What did what did candidate Biden promise he would do uh, when he got into office on the abortion issues? Well, one of his first priorities is uh, repealing the Mexico City policy. And and this is a policy that a Marist poll recently showed that over 80 percent of Americans support. Um, it, it's a policy that prohibits taxpayer funding for abortions for either abortions or the promotion of abortion abroad. So that's the idea that my tax money, your tax money, shouldn't be going to pay for abortions in, you know, Brazil or in Mongolia or, you know, in Africa somewhere. And because America, why would we pay for abortions overseas? And that, to me, is a fairly common sense policy. Um, but 
looked and, and the Obama administration disagreed. They wanted to fund those those uh, procedures and organizations, and uh, and it looks like the Biden administration does as well. Now, what what else are we looking at? I think that we'll see an attack on the Hyde Amendment as well, which I know we talked about Mexico City funding abortions abroad. The Hyde Amendment prevents American taxpayer dollars from funding abortions here in the U.S. And, mm-hmm. and again, there's an overwhelming amount of support. Sixty percent of Americans support the Hyde Amendment, including 37 percent of pro-choice Americans. Um, and they support it because it's good policy. American mm-hmm. taxpayer dollars should not go to fund abortions. Americans, a number of Americans believe that and and correctly believe that abortion is the destruction of a human life. Our tax dollars shouldn't be used to pay for that. Well, and, and of course I agree with that in, in my um my, one of my favorite rhetorical points in that discussion, because often the the other side will say, well, um, it's a, you have a fundamental right to abortion. Of course, we don't agree with that. But from their perspective, they have a fundamental right to an abortion. Therefore, tax money should be used to fund fundamental rights. But an analogy to that, something you actually have a fundamental right to is to keep and bear arms, the Second Amendment. And nobody on the left would suggest that taxpayer funds should be used to purchase my AR. Um, because we don't adopt that principle anywhere else. Um, Mary, we actually are running out of time, but we thank you so much for the work that you're doing. We thank you for your story, your courage, your testimony, everything you do here at FRC, and we look forward to continuing to work with you moving forward. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Joseph. Stay with us on the other side because we are going to talk to David Claussen, who's the director of the Center for Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview. We're going to talk about COVID restrictions, church services, what should we expect on religious freedom. You don't want to miss us. Miss it. Stay with us on the other side of the break. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday on over 800 radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Representative Vicki Hartzler, Molly Hemingway, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Dana Lash, Sissy Graham Lynch, Pastor John MacArthur, Eric Metaxas, Albert Moeller, and more. Tony is joined by leading political figures, pastors, and policy and culture experts who will inspire you to be engaged and informed on the important issues facing America. For a Christian perspective on the news of the day, tune in to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com. Ever since the Supreme Court handed down its infamous Roe v. Wade decision in 1973 that legalized abortion nationwide, a national debate has raged over whether the government should fund abortion. In 1976, Congress banned taxpayer funding of abortion and Medicaid by passing the Hyde Amendment. Several states have followed suit, passing their own restrictions on abortion funding. However, Because government funding is a complex system of joint federal and state programs, completely banning taxpayer funding for abortions and abortion businesses like Planned Parenthood is challenging. There is still much work to be done to free the American taxpayer from funding the horrific practice of abortion. 
Family Research Council's new publication clearly explains the Hyde Amendment and why we need to keep it in order to save taxpayers from being forced to fund abortion. Access this important information by visiting frc.org slash Hyde. What's on your daily or weekly reading list? Are you looking for honest and informative commentary from fellow believers on the current issues facing our culture? Family Research Council has just the thing. Check out FRC's blog at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts as well as outside contributors. On our blog, you can read about a wide variety of topics, including religious liberty, life, marriage, family, sexuality, public policy, and the culture. Read up on some of our latest titles like Four Disturbing Trends in Religious Freedom Worldwide, Legitimizing Looting Jeopardizes Liberty for All, The Media Still Doesn't Get It, Conservatives Tend to Vote Conservative, and more. At Family Research Council, our mission is to advance faith, family, and freedom in the culture by helping you live out your faith and to stand for truth. Our blog is here to help you do that. Stay informed and get the resources you need at frcblog.com. Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and it is my pleasure to be sitting in, filling in for Tony Perkins, as we watch Washington and everything that is happening in the nation's capital, especially in light of the pending change in administrations. And one of those things, one of the issues that the Family Research Council tracks uh, constantly, because it is such an important issue, is religious freedom. And of course, all of the COVID restrictions, all of the lockdowns have had a lot of implications for religious freedom and affected, not necessarily mostly, but significantly, our churches. And here to talk about uh, the state of the church in lockdowns and church services or to not church service is David Claussen. David, thanks for joining us. Hey, great to be back on the show with you, Joseph. Well, we are thrilled to have you because you always drop such wisdom for us. And today, in particular, uh, you have you are able to announce we have released a new resource for churches about these restrictions and the need for churches to reopen. Tell us about that, where people can get it. What are you trying to do with this? Yeah, no, that's right, Joseph. And uh, here at FRC, we're really excited about a a new issue brief, as we call it, that we've put out uh, titled, It's Time for Churches to Reopen uh, Theological and Legal Implications of Unfair Restrictions on churches, and uh, this was uh, several works, uh, several weeks uh, went into putting this together. But just th- how can we think about what's really happened over the last ten uh, months or so of uh, related to the coronavirus pandemic and what we've seen, uh, how uh, states and cities ha- have responded with these shutdowns and these lockdowns, but specifically how they have treated churches. And uh, my argument, uh, having observed this now since uh, the virus broke out in in late February, March of last year, is that unfortunately churches uh, and houses of worship have not been treated fairly. And uh, as we we can talk about some of the history there over the last couple of months that I'm sure our listeners are familiar with, uh, but what I'm arguing now, and of course I I think there's no one-size-fits-all policy uh, but if a church is able to reopen, uh, that it should reopen. You mentioned the implications of these 
restrictions on churches. In your view, what are the biggest implications from having policies that say churches you can't meet or you can only have a certain number of people or you have to wear masks if you sing? What are the what are the implications in your mind? Well, there's a lot of implications to think about, and, and, and as Christians, you know, first and foremost, we want to think about this theologically. We want, we want to think about it through the lens of, of Scripture. And I think it's important to realize, Joseph, because a lot of churches have come under a lot of criticism, um, but uh, for not following the guidance or wanting to buck authority. Uh, but actually, some of that's revisionist history. Uh, if you actually go back and look at the record, uh, 99% of churches uh, ceased in-person worship services back in March. Uh, by the end of March, uh, 99% of churches were closed. And that, that's because at the time, we didn't really know what was going on with this virus. We didn't know how lethal it was. And so out of love of our neighbor, we, we decided pastors all over the country, mil, you know, uh, tens of thousands of churches decided to close um, because we, they, we just didn't know exactly what was going on. However, as you know, glory to God that this virus um, wasn't as bad as the initial, uh, you know, prognostication was. And uh, when we got to the summer, we saw that uh, states and localities were allowing businesses to reopen. We saw uh, casinos were allowed to reopen, even abortion clinics and liquor stores, and yet churches weren't allowed to, to reopen. I think that sends a bad signal, uh, a signal that I think our forefathers would be shocked at. And what the signal that it is is that uh, church is not essential. And that that um, is something that I think pastors have rightfully begun to push back on. Um, but, but and one other thing I'll add, Joseph, is uh, and s- social st- studies are starting to bear this out. With the churches closed, we've seen a spike in suicides. We've seen a huge spike in loneliness, uh, domestic assault. So there, there are other implications for keeping the church shuttered for months on end. Now, I think that's a really good point. And, and what we are learning, and we are kind of discovering a, a truth about humanity that we are. We were built to be in community, and this is a theological principle that that God is in community with himself, the, in the, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and refers to himself in the plural in, in the creation story in Genesis, but people were not meant to live in isolation, to be alone. And this has created much more isolation and, and much, much more loneliness, and we're discovering, we're just proving what what God told us back at the beginning that it is not good for man to be alone. And that is, you know, that is true in a, in a, in a marriage sense in one sense, but it is mostly true and primarily true in that people were meant to be in relationship with each other. And, and you, you point out how the church, um, was cooperative. And, and I, another point I think is important to make here is that when 99% of the churches shut down, that they were doing so because they did want to love their neighbor. But isn't it important to, to, for the church not to cede the authority and to say that we as a church, we can make this decision for ourselves, but we are not going to succumb to, an, to a governmental authority that thinks it can tell us when to operate or how to operate. Do you think that's an important distinction? It's an incredibly important distinction, Joseph, and it's one that I actually do highlight in this paper that we put out yesterday. There's there's a couple of important principles. One, that as Christians, we do believe that government is God-ordained and legitimate. Uh, Paul teaches this very clearly in uh, Romans 13. However, it's important to realize uh, that while government is God-ordained, it's legitimate. God has not granted the government jurisdiction 
over the doctrine, over the liturgy, over the practices of the church. You see, pastors and elders, not magistrates, uh, are, are, have been entrusted with the authority of uh, the church, uh, the, the bride of Christ. And so that's why I think there is biblical precedent for uh, uh, disobeying uh, civil rulers when they do step out of the prescribed jurisdiction that God has given them. Uh, the example that I uh, think of is in Acts chapter 5. Uh, the apostles were told not to preach the gospel. And w- what was Peter's response uh, to, to those uh, officials? He said, we must obey, obey God rather than man. And, and frankly, Joseph, one of the things that was so alarming over the summer was that when uh, businesses in our community started to reopen, that one of the only things that was allowed uh, or told not to open was the churches. In several cases, actually went to the Supreme Court, and in 5-4 decisions, uh, the Supreme Court sided with these states and, and these cities uh, that said that churches could not open or they could have maybe 50 people in them, uh, but that casinos mm-hmm. down the street could open up to 50% of capacity, meaning that thousands of people could go play blackjack and craps, but no more than 50 people uh, could gather for worship and singing hymns to God. And so I think that was something that was alarming we saw this summer uh, that we should never allow happen again. Uh, do you think that uh, giving casinos preference to churches qualifies as uh, having a God before me in a, uh, in a, in a uh, Ten Commandments sense? And that's kind of a rhetorical tongue-in-cheek question. But yes, if you're allowed to gamble, play crafts, but you're not allowed to go to church, something is amiss. Now, David, what advice are you giving in this booklet or otherwise to churches as they consider this, if they're if they're still in a state that's saying no, you can't meet, or you can only meet with these restrictions, what's your advice to them now? Well, the first thing I would want to say is some of the stuff I've said right now uh, could be a little uh, depressing, uh, but there's been really good news, Joseph, that I think our listeners do, need to be aware of. Uh, while a lot of those cases over the summer were uh, five four decisions at the Supreme Court against churches. Uh, in December, we had several, November and December, we had several rulings uh, that sided with houses of worship. And obviously, one of the things that helped change that dynamic was the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court uh, in late October. Uh, but there's been several uh, churches and synagogues that have won their cases. And the Supreme Court is now recognizing and telling uh, lower courts uh, that churches need to be treated fairly. And so I th- I'm really encouraged by that trend. Uh, But one other thing I would just add to that, Joseph, is that I would encourage every pastor, every elder board, uh, every deacon body, however the the church uh, structure of authority is, is that uh, it is safe to reopen, uh, that you should be able to reopen. The courts are siding with you. And here at FRC, we have resources to help you uh, open in a responsible and safe way. Uh, You can go to frc.org slash church. And one of the first uh, documents that you'll see on that side is guidelines uh, for reopening your church. And a lot of the experts here at FRC put a lot of thought and time into that. And we've heard a tremendous response from some of our pastors who are using that resource uh, to make sure that they're opening in a way that protects uh, the the people who are coming for worship, uh, but that honors the Lord and allows the people of God uh, to come back to church and worship. And we are thankful to you for the time and effort that has been put in that because I know that it is helping thousands of churches across the country right now think through this in a really helpful way. And again, it's frc.org slash church. Did I get that right? 
Yeah, frc.org slash church is all of our resources. And for the paper that you and I are talking about, frc.org slash reopen, which lays out some of the legal and theological considerations uh, for why churches should begin to reopen. Okay, now let's pivot briefly. We've got a couple minutes left here, and this is a big conversation about religious freedom. But COVID restrictions and lockdowns on churches are not the only religious freedom issue that uh, we need people to be aware of. David, talk to us a little bit from your perspective, what you're seeing as you cover this issue, as you think about what the, what the Biden administration potentially means for churches, for, um, for believers in America. Uh, what are the things that you're tracking that you're thinking about that people need to know about? Yeah, that's such an important question, Joseph. And, you know, one thing uh, that I'm just so grateful for, for the last four years with the Trump administration, we have had uh, an administration that has prioritized religious freedom uh, internationally and domestically. And I'll be honest with you, Joseph, my hope is that with the coronavirus uh, still raging in parts of the country, the the, the conversations about rolling out the vaccine, uh, talk about how we're going to revitalize the economy, uh, threats around the world with China and Russia. My hope is, is that Joe Biden and his administration is not going to pivot and try to undo all the gains we've seen under the Trump administration. However, uh, elections have consequences, and we know that uh, President-elect Biden, when he was candidate Biden, uh, made a lot of promises about undoing some of the gains we've seen uh, with religious freedom. And one of those, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, is he has said that one of his uh, – domestic legislative uh, priorities is enacting the Equality Act within the first 100 days, uh, legislation that would codify sexual orientation, gender identity, and strip uh, religious freedom protections from Americans who disagree uh, with some of those contested categories. And and there are other things he has promised to do uh, that we're going to be monitoring and drawing attention to here at FRC, encouraging him not to take that course, uh, but it's something that we need uh, to be vigilant about. That's a great point. And let's spend a moment on the Equality Act um, because it has broad implications. And what it would do, it would insert sexual orientation and gender identity into the federal non-discrimination code. And so in the same way that right now the federal law prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, of gender, of religion, it would also say you cannot discriminate on the basis of gender identity and sexual orientation. And basically what that means is um, what you do sexually and who, whether you think you are male and female. And the implications of that, um, it would require, uh, we talk about schools, Massive implications for schools, and we saw that the uh, the Obama administration, toward the end, had written that uh, the the advice letter to all of the public schools, basically saying that you risk your federal funding for education if you do not allow students to access facilities, participate on sports teams based on their um, on their gender on, on their gender identity rather than what they are biologically. Um, we see this uh, so that there's sports implications, there's grant applications for anybody who wants to run a shelter, a foster care ministry, an adoption ministry, um, which touches the church because those could be religious nonprofit organizations that simply want to be foster parents or that simply want to take orphans in the James way, take care of orphans and widows in your knee. 
in their need, take those orphans and place them with homes, the government would say, no, you cannot help us take care of orphans unless you agree that boys can become girls or unless you believe that homosexuality is morally virtuous. It really touches everything, doesn't it? No, it, it really does, and you just uh, ably pointed out several of the implications of the very disingenuously named piece of legislation known as the Equality Act. One other thing I'll mention, and it's in the, the fine print of the law, uh, which I've read, uh, the House of Representatives actually did pass this last year because Democrats control the House of Representatives, uh, but one other thing the act would do is undermine religious uh, liberty protections currently in place uh, f- from the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act. Uh, people could no longer uh, make a claim to uh, that, that's protected by RIFRA. And so what you would do is essentially that this sexual freedom would trump religious freedom uh, for Americans who have sincerely held views on what marriage is and what gender is and how human sexuality is supposed to func- function. And so, Joseph, uh, the, the Equality Act is something very, very important that we need to be uh, hoping that they don't mo- move down this path. But if they do, we need to be drawing a lot of attention to it. The good news is, and David, um, for everybody in the audience, we're going to leave you with some of that. What's different between the Obama administration and the Biden administration is four years of Trump judges. And we cannot miss the significance of that because the assaults on religious freedom will continue, but we have uh, potential protections that we didn't have four years ago. That's something we all can be grateful for. David Clawson, thanks for joining us. Thanks for all you do. Thank you, Joseph. Friends, we are at the end of the program. Do not be afraid. Don't fear the world, for take heart. I have overcome the world. You can do this. Have a great weekend. Trust Jesus. We'll see you next time. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.